Welcome to Business Sense with Brad. For more information regarding the topics that are discussed on this show, go to businesssensewithbrad.com. The purpose of this episode is to finish up the Ayn Rand two-part series. In the first episode, we talked about the first three pillars of her philosophy, which were kind of the overarching uh, objectivism, if you will. And just long story short, you can get this back in the previous episode, that the world truly exists. There's no, I guess, world beyond our world that we can really experience for ourselves, if you will. There's not, as we talked about in the last episode, there is no noumenal world, for example, as Kant suggested. So there's the objective reality. The next pillar flows out of this, and the best way to understand this reality is reason. So a human being's highest faculty is their reason, according to Rand. And then from there, this leads into individualism. Again, in the last episode, it wasn't clear to me how these all interlock, but this was kind of how the philosophy flows down. And that a rational human being essentially is making intellectual decisions to survive. So that was where we basically ended. It was with her philosophy that is called rational selfishness. And so a human being's main purpose, if you will, is to survive. And she was a huge fan of using their intellect to survive and not penalizing them if they're more successful, if you will, than others. And at the core of this was being able to trade freely. Now, I said freely and fairly. That's even a loaded term today. In her view, trading with others, running your own business, letting someone else run their own, and then having non-coercive trading was fair. That's basically all I meant by that. If you hear about fair trade today, uh, it means a lot more than that. But she would just say as long as the trading between businesses or individuals is free of coercion or violence, then those are fair and free trades, if you will. All right, so in this episode, I'm going to talk about what she means by capitalism and how it flows out of her first three pillars of her uh, ethical philosophy. And I'll also talk about her disagreement over the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And so she was actually writing her book, The Virtue of Selfishness, uh, much of it in 1963 as it was being considered as legislation. And so I'll talk about uh, her opposition to that and, and kind of how it's a microcosm of opposition to other laws. Okay, back to the first episode, talking about the first three pillars. In my opinion, her philosophy becomes much clearer in connecting individualism to capitalism. So let's say the third to the fourth pillar. It's a lot clearer than when she was connecting objectivism to rationality to individualism. So I guess the first pillar to the second to the third. So long story short, I think connecting individualism to capitalism is much a much easier connection, if you will. Okay, so Ayn's version of capitalism is much closer to what libertarians believe today, much more so than Republicans. And in fact, I would say she would denounce almost all Republicans today. And keep in mind, most of what we're going to talk about today, I'm just talking about mostly about economic policy. Uh, I guess social issues too can tie into this, but mostly I'm going to focus on economic policy. Rand's ideas, as we mentioned in the first part of the series, are still influential on conservatives today, more so on fiscal conservatives and libertarians. 
anecdotally, especially during the 2020 election, and this might always be the case, but personally I noticed many friends who were desperately wanting a third party to vote for. The Libertarian Party, who I would argue has been the most consistent policy-wise of any party, is the third most popular party in the U.S. Of course, in a two-party system, coming in third place means you're the first loser. So the Libertarian Party won a little over 1% of the vote in the 2020 election, and then the Green Party would be the fourth most popular party, and they won much less than that. All right, so what is the appeal with libertarian beliefs economically and politically, and then how would this affect businesses and uh, how they operate? And, of course, what role does Ayn Rand play in all of this? And before moving on, Ayn Rand has been an influence on libertarianism, but she is not by far the only thinker in libertarianism. So she has a role to play. So I would say many libertarians have been influenced by her philosophy, but there are many other thinkers. But, of course, she's one of the more popular historical figures. Okay, before we move forward with economic and political policy, we need to define the word violence from Rand's perspective. First, it is assumed that individuals have rights. So we talked about her three pillars earlier. Again, objectivism, reason, and then individual rights. She assumes that the individual has the right to live and to earn a living and to keep any of the benefits or rewards from their earnings. So individuals have no right to violently, which means physically or through government coercion. So here's where violently we need to define it because she doesn't just mean physical violence, but also through coercion or we're going to say taxes here in a minute to take another person's property. So an individual has the right to live and to survive. And she would probably say who has the right to take away from what they've earned and give it to someone else. So redistribution, if you will, she would consider to be a form of violence, even though it's non-physical. Libertarians like Ayn are typically non-interventionist, especially with foreign affairs. So this would talk about the violent side of things. They don't want to be involved in foreign wars. Um, Again, this would be a violent form. They would be for defensive, so they're not anti-military by any means, but they're not for offensive violence. Physical force should only be used defensively, personally, or at the nation-state level, which is why gun ownership is no problem for libertarians. So Ayn Rand and, I guess, the libertarians would believe that you should never infringe upon another's right to exist. And, of course, if we're talking violence, this would be in the form of physical violence or non-physical violence. So a human being's right to their own self-sustaining existence and their possessions gained from their work, if they are uber successful and wealthy beyond all measure, or they are broke and just are barely scraping by, regardless of whether someone is super successful or not, their rights should never be infringed upon by others, according to Ayn. This means the governments should not also be infringing upon their rights. Wealth redistribution, again, is considered a violent act. So if you are running your own business and you just have a great year, fiscally speaking, You shouldn't be required to give any of that money back to the government, according to Ayn Rand. Or if you just had a really bad year and you lost, that's tough, but that's just how it goes. And again, from the previous episode, Ayn believes in rational selfishness. And this is a quote from her. The objectivist ethics proudly advocates and upholds rational selfishness, which means the values required for man's survival, which means the values required for human survival. 
not the values produced by the desires, the emotions, or aspirations, or feelings, or whims, or the needs of irrational brutes who have never outgrown the primordial practice of human sacrifices, have never discovered an industrial society. It could conceive of no self-interest but the grabbing the loot of the moment. So rational, selfish again for Ayn Rand is using your intellect to separate yourself. As we Again, if you're thinking evolutionary to separate yourself from the other animals, we're going to use our intellect in an industrious manner to create wealth, which is, in her opinion, amazing. Uh, more productivity and more wealth is a good thing. And you should be making decisions with this rationality in mind, not just making decisions based on emotions or feelings or whims. Rational selfishness is the right of a person to seek for his own sake. He has the freedom to do what he desires merely as long as, as he is not violating other people's rights. So here we've hammered home rational selfishness and individualism. Again, I keep using the word man. That's how they wrote back then. So I'm not transposing all of these into human or humankind. I just assume I am. The most important fundamental right is a man's right to his life, like his neighbors and so on. They all have their own individual rights. So here's where we're going to then tie into capitalism. Property rights are necessary for individuals to self-sustain. It's important to note that a man's work may not lead him to acquire property. He may fail. So as we mentioned, a person may actually fail as they pursue their own self-interest. But he does, he does gain this property if he rightfully earns it. Ein then ties this expression, man has a right to the pursuit of happiness, but not the right to happiness. So a person has the right, needs to have liberty to be able to pursue happiness, but they do not have the right actually to win happiness. They might fail. So this leads into property rights and free trade being man's only economic rights. Private citizens should not be allowed to be a threat to another's freedom. A man has the right, I like this quote, a man has the right to free speech, but that does not mean others need to provide him a lecture hall. So this is typical Ein. Okay, so how does this all tie into her version of capitalism? And here's where we would definitely see a divergence from uh, our current political parties. Uh, and again, I would say libertarians are the most closest to this. Okay, first, Ein said that government is the most dangerous threat to a man's rights. They have a monopoly on physical force. And she actually wrote about the idea of competing governments. Imagine if you had competing police forces, and she said that was absurd. Um, but could you imagine having competing governments and police forces? And we're like, we like this police force better. Let's give them a call. It's, uh, it's hard to consider. Different courts, um, that, would be, that would just be wild. So she does agree that the government does have the right to be a monopoly, and they ha do have the monopoly on physical force. A human being has the right to self-defense, but laws need to be clearly laid out to minimize retaliatory force. So she's not saying that human beings should be cavalier beyond their physical defense. Like they shouldn't be aggressive, gaining retribution or something like that. So there does need to be a, there does need to be a police force and court system and so on. The forcible restraint of men is the only service a government has to offer. So here we don't see anything about social programs or anything like that. The only role of a government, in Ein's view, is the forcible restraint of men. Protection of individual rights is the only purpose of government. This includes protecting citizens from both foreign and localized violence. So again, she's not anti-police force or anti-military but they would they would be re they would be regulating if you will much less than we are today so there would be fewer laws to enforce and the military would be primarily a defensive agent 
and the only the only purpose of both would be to protect the liberty and freedom of its citizens. So here's one of the things she's for. Contracts must be governed to ensure fair trade. Breaching a contract is an example of non-physical violence. So again, we've defined violence already. It can be non-physical. For instance, depriving a person of an order. Let's say a restaurant orders food for its kitchen and the supplier takes their money and runs is an attack on that individual's right to life. So even though it wasn't a physically violent taking the money and run situation, it was an attack on the individual's right and would be considered violent. Okay, so this would might lead you to the question, well, how would we pay for the government? Uh, and again, a lot of libertarians say this, taxation is theft. So, and, and Chris Rock once said in one of his specials, the government doesn't ask you to pay tax, they take the tax. I mean, when you get your paycheck, the money's gone. So how do we then pay for the government if they're not allowed to take taxes out of your paycheck? And this is where it gets, well, I mean, it, this is where it gets really dicey. The government should be paid for voluntarily. For instance, the government will only enforce contracts where people or businesses pay, I guess, a fee. But I just can imagine which kind of businesses have the most money to enforce have contracts enforced that would be the big business and um, again if we're just talking small business i imagine many small businesses wouldn't have the same funds to pay the government if you will to enforce than the larger ones and so i can just see this uh, becoming a problem so the government would be voluntarily paid for even the military would have to be voluntarily paid for. She even said that most people wouldn't voluntarily pay for this, and then she doesn't really resolve it. Taxes are considered non-physical violence. Again, like taxation is theft is a popular saying. And so uh, you would not tax individuals. So imagine running a business and paying zero tax. And the Constitution places restraints and limitations on the government, not private individuals. So she says our Constitution is all about limiting government, not the people. All right, so you could see that uh, these views are quite extreme as far as the role of government. You would really have none, hardly, other than the role of you'd have a police force to protect local citizens from localized violence. And of course, the purpose is to let citizens live their lives and freely trade. And again, I know these are loaded terms. I know some of you are thinking that there's all kinds of problems when you freely trade. Just, But for our, for our purposes, we're just going to leave all of these out there. Again, you can look at points, counterpoints to all of these. And then, of course, you would have a military that protects you at the national level. And again, this would allow citizens to have liberty and freedom to pursue their own self-interest. And then the government would enforce contracts that helps promote trade. And other than that, you wouldn't have much role or use for government at all. Again, we often think of the government as providing social programs or like the Environmental Protection Agency or things of this nature, paving the roads and that kind of thing. You would have none of this in a purely libertarian state. You would have to, it would either have to be privatized or voluntarily paid for. Again, not all libertarians are this extreme. Some are, some would be for tax, but they would still be minimalist. They would still want small government, just not to this extreme of a level. So how would this, her ideas impact business? Well, of course, it would be easier to start a business. So for entrepreneurs, one of the hardest things to start a business is the idea of taking on a risk that you might fail. But then if you add in all of the legislation that you've got to worry about and taxes, and it gets complicated really fast and getting permits and this and that, 
it does stifle entrepreneurship the more laws that you have. Not, I'm not saying any of these laws are necessarily bad, but of course, the more laws you have and the more p- complex they get, that stifles innovation, especially at the small business level. So libertarianism would be much easier to start a business, but then of course, it would be much easier to grow without restraint. And then competition may get difficult in the future as you get, of course, as we always get either monopolies or oligopolies. It's just the nature of the beast. Uh, you can look up the Pareto principle if you get bored. This is just uh, how, the, how it goes. And of course, there would be minimal regulation and so on. And that's where we're going to tie into the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And again, I'm just broad brushing here. I'm not really getting it quite in depth. Again, I'm not getting super in-depth here. I'm just laying out her ideas. So the Civil Rights Act of 1964, let's use this as a microcosm of how she sees the role of government and laws in business. So the the Civil Rights Act of 1964 prevents discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, and national origin. It's been revised since, but that's uh, it's, it's basically to prevent discrimination during hiring and promoting and firing processes, if you will. She was opposed to this because she said you shouldn't legislate morality, and we hear this a lot. Now, of course, the quick counter to this is you are legislating morality if you're saying, for example, killing is wrong or violent force is wrong. You're making a moral claim. So most of us, I would say, draw a morality line. How moral or how much morality are we going to have our police officers enforce? We legislate morality all of the time. And so she would draw the line at physical, not physical force. That's where she would draw the line. And then it would be kind of a live and let live philosophy after that. So she believes that no individual person's rights, or you could swap business here. She believes that no business's rights should be violated by the government. So if, uh, let's say, a business does discriminate based on race, for instance, she would say that the best way to handle this, since it's a moral issue, not a legal issue, in her opinion, would be to boycott, essentially cancel the business or protest. So if this business is doing something wrong, let the consumers respond accordingly instead of trying to legislate it. Ein considers racism, for instance, as a moral wrong and would agree that businesses should not discriminate. Again, legislating morality becomes quite difficult. And and her big problem with this law, and you do see this in human resource textbooks, is that you're not supposed to have quotas when you're using a law such as the Civil Rights Act of 1964. You should just be hiring and firing naturally, and that should lead to, I guess, a diverse workforce. But it also pressures companies to have quotas, and she was opposed to the quota system. In her uh, defense, if you would, this act was written in 1964, And we're in 2021, and do we still have issues with discrimination based on race, sex, national origin, religion, and so on? Yes. I would imagine she would say any progress is made more at the societal level or individual level, if you will, but not through the government. And then if you took a look at 1963 Equal Pay Act, and let's assume that the 80 cents that women make on the dollar to men is, uh, I know there's debate over to that exact figure, but let's assume it's true. And there's a 1963 Act that prevents discrimination, and there's the Lilly Ledbetter Act in the 2000s that allows punitive rewards or damage against a company. We have two laws on the books to prevent discrimination, and it's still occurring. So is legislating... Adding more law is going to help that. And then, of course, the more laws that you add are going to make it so up-and-coming entrepreneurs are going to have a harder time entering because of all of the myriad of laws. 
So again, I'm not making a case personally for these laws being good or bad. I'm just looking at them through the eyes of Ayn Rand. I'm trying to. But I do always personally find this interesting when uh, when people want to give the government more power, but yet they think half are just not competent. I'm like, why would we want to give incompetent people more power if that's our belief? But here we are. And really it comes into, if we're looking at this generally, and let's say, say we're looking at a spectrum, and more of the Marx idea is that the industrialists or the the uh, large corporations of the world, a handful of people have too much power and everyone else is exploited, basically. And on the flip, you have um, Ein's view that you don't want a handful of people in the government in power because essentially they become the upper class and everyone else becomes the proletariat. And so it's it pretty much, long story short, would you rather have the pendulum speaking to business people having more power or the large corporations are having a swing to having the government have more power when one entity has the right to physical force or nonviolent force. And again, I know that's simplifying it too much probably, but again, most people are on that continuum somewhere. And we would say Ein would be quite far on the right, but not at an anarchy level by any means. She still believes in laws, just minimal, minimal laws. Libertarians today are believers in individuals. Some are not as extreme as Ayn regarding her views on economics and politics. For instance, some concede that more laws are needed in society beyond contract enforcement and laws dealing with violence. Ayn would think that they are too moderate for sure. But here are some basic assumptions of libertarians, and we'll close with these. And again, influenced by Ayn, of course, but maybe not. Some Many libertarians... Uh, I'd, Maybe some libertarians have never heard of her, but her, her influence is definitely there. So free market economics, and again, I know right off the bat there are critics out there that are like, the market's not free. There's always exploitation in, in going on, but let's just call it free market. You're free to trade, and that there's just going to be this uneven distribution of wealth, just how it goes. Either way, either way, it's the government with the uneven distribution or certain businesses or individuals. So free market economics, as Ayn said before, trade between individuals should not be coercive or violent. It should be freely done with minimal government intervention or none. This brings peace and prosperity. Again, critics, especially those influenced by Marx, would assume almost all trade exchanges are, are exploitative versus Ayn's view that they're free and fair in her view. Uh, again, we, we defined free and fair earlier. Okay, so back to what do libertarians believe? Minimal government is best and big government is too obtrusive and unsustainable. Freedom and liberty are paramount. Okay, so the war on drugs should never have began, nor should it still be going on. I dare to say that libertarians are the most pro-immigration out of any of the parties out there. So since trade is free and fair and that some countries will have better trade systems than others, they are definitely pro-immigration, and it's not just uh, high-skilled immigration, low-skilled, high-skilled. Come and, come and get in the action and see what you can do in the market. They're, again, they're non-interventionist foreign policy-wise. They do support the right to bear arms, but in defense of one's life. Legislating morality gets messy and can strain, be a strain on businesses. Fewer regulations equate to more businesses and competition. And again, the best way I would say to, for uh, if you're going to try to legislate morality is to not do it, but yet solve it at the individual level or the protest level. Of course, less taxes or none are better since it's theft and all. Let an entrepreneur keep their wages. Wealth disparities just happen naturally. And if we're talking about health care, 
So she would undoubtedly cringe at universal health care. She'd want some kind of incentive-based system to get uh, health care prices down. In conclusion, we talked about Ayn Rand's philosophy and how it impacts individuals and businesses. Her influence on conservative economics and political beliefs should at least be understood by pro-business persons. And again, the Libertarian Party is the third most popular party in the United States, even though, again, two-party system. And I'll end with this question. Do you believe Ayn got most, some, hardly any, or none of her four pillars, and that's just what I call them, right? No pun intended. My disclaimer, I broad brushed quite a bit with Ayn's beliefs and counter-arguments. Again, the purpose of this podcast was to bring light to Ayn's philosophy and the impact on libertarianism and business. Thanks for listening to Business Sense with Brad. Please subscribe and like on your favorite podcast app.